This is Tip of the Tongue's 100th episode. We decided to turn things upside down by inviting Ken Albala, professor, food historian, and a wonderful demonstrator of historical food preparation to interview me. It's great fun. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Let me first start by just telling your readers, I think they deserve to know that when you asked me to do an interview, to interview you, you neglected to ask whether I had actually ever interviewed anyone before. (laughs) And the answer is no, resolutely no. (laughs) So you're my first. I think I'll be good at it, but who knows? (laughs) I mean, I think you'd be good at it too. I wouldn't have asked you. (laughs) Well, this is my first. And I just gathered that it's your hundredth episode, which is fantastic. Yes. Um, yes. I actually just listened to the episode right from last, uh, that just dropped, Uh you know, on my way to work this morning, which was fun about food museums. So I'm going to organize my questions basically into three parts. The first being about you and where you are. And the second part about the museum, which I don't think you really talk that much about in the podcast, just because obviously it's of interest to me. And then if we have time, there's some questions I'd like to ask about food culture in general and in New Orleans specifically and um, where you think it's going. So let me first ask, I don't actually remember how we met. I know we worked together on a book in my series that you did, which was the food biography of New Orleans a long, long time ago. It's maybe, it might even be like almost 15, 20 years long ago. It's a long time. So I think that book came out in 2012. No, no, it's got to be much, much longer. Oh, no, that's right. That's right. That's probably 2003 or four. Yeah, that's probably right. (laughs) So a long, long time ago. And I guess you did another book with Greenwood after that on food law. Right. right? I did that one too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then, and you just came out with another one, which is the Unique Eats. Is that recent? Yeah, that that was 2019, which is really weird because it was, you know, I selected about 102 places to eat in New Orleans. And now that the pandemic has hit, the landscape is so very different, even though it's not that old of a book, I feel that it's not really reflective of what's happening here in the city now. Wow. So it wasn't meant to be a guidebook. It was, it was kind of a guidebook. Yes. So Hmm. that it's like you come to New Orleans and you want to figure out, Oh, this looks like an interesting place to eat kind of thing. But also I thought it would be that kind of book that if you had gotten yourself into a rut, you live in New Orleans and you always go to the same place. <laughs> yeah. You know, this would be a way to say, oh, let's go try this place. You know, I haven't been there in 15 years kind of thing. And, and so it would remind you of some of the other restaurants in the city. I so, get it. So, so you probably have seen the city change many times just from you know, obviously the big events, Katrina being one and this pandemic, but you've, have you always lived in New Orleans? You've been there your whole life? 
I, I was born here and raised here, but then I went away for college and law school. And then after that, I joined the military and I lived in Germany. I lived in Washington, wow. D.C. So I've been in other places. Yeah. I did not know that. So, so is it the kind of place where people do have favorite restaurants and they keep going back to them and perhaps even getting a rut about? You know? Yes, absolutely. It is that kind of place. Yes. So let me ask a question. You speak often about your Sicilian background and I guess the cooking that comes from that side of your family, but is there, is there another side? Is there another, like, do you, are your roots entirely Sicilian or, and if that's the case, where'd you get the name Williams? I'm half Sicilian. And as my mother used to say, she went from being Giuseppina Baiamonte to being Joe Williams overnight. (laughs) Ah, Okay. That makes sense. And so my father is from North Louisiana came to New Orleans basically after World War II to kind of start a business and do something that he came from one of those little small towns where his graduating class from high school had six people in it. And uh, he said, you know, there's no no job there. And so he came to New Orleans and uh, that's how he met my mother and all that sort of thing. You know, the rest is history kind of stuff. So... My father certainly influenced my eating, but I think that New Orleans and the Sicilian side, which was my mother's side, so therefore she was cooking. And then there was a large, large Sicilian community in New Orleans that was still made up of direct immigrants and first generation people. So I ate in that community also. And my father, he had certain things that were important, but my grandmother, my father's mother lived in North Louisiana for many, many years as I was growing up. So I would go visit, but I didn't have the same kind of influence. And my grandmother on my father's side was one of those people who If you went to dinner at her house, she could have the entire family at her house and she always cooked the same thing. It was a roast chicken. She made rice and gravy. She made peas out of a can and and she made apple salad with one apple. You could have 30 people coming for dinner and that's- Oh my gosh. And so- it was such an, an anathema to me, having come with this abundanza kind of background yeah. <laughs> to go and eat there. I mean, my mother would always feed us before we went to dinner at my grandmother's house. It's amazing. Wow. <laughs> so do your, do your father's strange tastes come from her, uh, his mother? I mean, I remember this anecdote, I, I must have posted something about spam. And you said your father put spam together in some yes, <laughs> bizarre yes, way. Yes. My, my father grew up a lot on canned foods because they lived, my, my grandfather, my father's father worked in the oil fields. And I mean, he had these uh, monkey wrenches that were three feet long, you know, these huge things from working in the oil fields. And so the family would go and they would be three or four families living in this little compound and then nothing around them. 
So a lot of the time they ate canned food because that was all they could get. So to, until he died, my father would not eat fresh spinach. He would only eat canned wow. spinach. And he tried fresh spinach and he just didn't like it. He would only eat canned spinach. And so that's where his love of spam and that sort of thing came from because that's what he grew up eating. And so that was familiar. So was your interest in cooking in part a reaction to that? Or did you just say, okay, I'm going with my Italian heritage and that's, is that what you cook today still is Italian mostly? Well, I, I, I mean, my food is probably a combination of New Orleans and Italian. You know, I make red beans and rice and jambalaya and mm -hmm. gumbo and all that sort of thing. It's not just Italian, but no, I don't think I was, it wasn't a negative reaction to that. It was more of a positive reaction to growing up in New Orleans where food was everywhere. And then the, it was kind of reinforced by this Sicilian community, which was very food focused also. Well, so let, me, let me ask a question. Go ahead. Let me ask no, you a question about, about, about New Orleans. This is more of my father, but my, my mother tolerated my father's little quirks, you know, so there would be canned spinach, but nobody yeah. else ate it except <laughs> him, you know, and, uh, and he was a rice eater. And of course, my mother was a pasta eater. And so you always knew when there was rice on the table that my mother was trying to ask my father something or, uh, you know, it was like, oh, there's rice. That's great. What does that mean? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a kind of, uh, the kind of weirdness, but my father loved fat and my mother was always on a diet. So she never ate fat, you know, but my father would like, if you had a, a, a pork chop or a little steak that had fat on it, my mother would take the fat off and my father would save it. And then he would cook it in a little skillet himself. He cooked oh it <laughs> And then because he knew I would eat it too, he would cut it in half and give it to half to me and half to him. And so we'd eat, oh, let's have this pork fat or let's eat this, you know? And, and so maybe we'd put it on toast or something like that. But um, <laughs> he had his little quirks, you know, and I, I yeah. Yeah, the fat is the best part. It I'm wondering how you part. can be. No doubt about it. Can, yeah, how you can be an Italian chef and be afraid of fat seems a little, you know, difficult. Obviously, you need olive oil, you know. Right. And, but, right. Wow. So I had a question about New Orleans that that struck me as we began talking that there are restaurants that come and go, and there are dishes. Do you ever think that? the impression people have of New Orleans when they go there is that there are certain signature dishes. That's what they want to find. That's all they care about, really. And it's, you know, it's got to be etouffee. It's got to be gumbo. It's got to be a hurricane or a Sazerac, you know, and that that is tends to sort of stereotype the, what people think of New Orleans and kind of miss the richness and variety and the, the various people that are there, you know. Well, I think most people do come with, you know, I have to eat a po' boy, I have to eat this, yeah. I have to eat that. There, there's a whole lot of that. Um, I, I guess I don't worry about that too much in terms of its influence on the food of New Orleans, because most of New Orleans food is, is kind of that sort of social invention that's really based on home cooking. And it's not invented by chefs. It's not that kind of food. It's, it's you know, 
everybody's gumbo is different. I go to your house and you serve me gumbo. I know it's gumbo, but it's different from mine. You come to my house, you know it's gumbo, but it's different from yours. But the gumbo still unites us all because we recognize that it's gumbo. Same thing with almost anything you make, whether it's a shrimp creole or um, if it's fried catfish or um, yeah. you know anything. But isn't the tendency to like codify a certain way to make this, put it in a, in a book or serve it at a restaurant and then people will say, oh, this is the authentic one and the others are really not so great, you know? I mean, I think that outsiders may think that. Yeah. But if you, if, you know, if you ask a New Orleanian, where's the best gumbo? They'll never tell you a restaurant. They'll say, Aunt so-and-so's house is the best mm. gumbo. And, um, and I think that the best cookbooks about New Orleans food, although they may give you specific instructions with measurements and whatever, they also tell you, but do it your way and add this if you want to. There yeah. are no rules, you know. So I think there's a lot of that. Okay, let me ask another question about how you got into law, why you got out of law, whether it was actually food law that you were interested in the first place or were you just um, your ordinary garden variety lawyer? Okay, so um, this is like back in the antediluvian days. I graduated <laughs> from college in 71. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. When I was in college, I was very interested in food and culture, that kind of intersection, but I couldn't figure out how to study it. And I didn't, everyone kept pushing me into home economics and that's not what I wanted to do. So I changed my major eight times or so. I was in microbiology, I was in chemistry, I was in pre-med and then went finally, my last year I said, well, I just have to graduate. So all I, I said, I'm gonna get a degree in English cause I can just read all the time. And so that's how I got a degree in English without any real direction. And then I decided to get a graduate degree in English but I had to work over the summer. So in those days, even though the Civil Rights Act had been passed in 1964 and it you know, said you couldn't discriminate on the basis of, of gender, but the, it didn't actually go into effect, I don't think until 67 or 68. You know, It was one of those things where in order to get people to pass it, they had to kind of kick the can down the road. And so in 1971, it was still being litigated. So the way people kept from having to obey the law was to interpose a layer, which was the employment agency. So you went to the employment agency, everybody went to the employment agencies, and that's how you got a job. So my husband and I, you know, went to get jobs for the summer and maybe stay longer if it was a good job, maybe stay a year or two before we went to graduate school, that kind of thing. And they gave him and they gave both of us a, a, a test, but they also gave me a typing test. Well, I couldn't type worth anything. And so I got offered this horrible job and he got offered this, you know, internship that turns into, you know, oh. a great leadership <laughs> position. And I was so angry. 
So I was talking to the woman who owned the employment agency. And she said, I'm really sorry, but that company will not hire women for those jobs. That's why I, I'm interposed here so that they don't have to tell you, I tell you. So I said, well, what am I supposed to do? Because I hadn't gotten a degree in education or any of those things that you were supposed to get. And she said, you have these choices. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or an architect. Well, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I looked into being an architect or an engineer, and it took three more years of study, and I would still have an undergraduate degree. I would have a second undergraduate degree. Oh, wow. And law school was three years, and then I would have a terminal degree. And I thought, well, I guess I'm going to law school. That's <laughs> oh my how I picked the law. Okay. Really passionate about justice and whatever, going to law school. <laughs> no, it was just the practical decision. So when we, we decided to finish, um, we would finish the summer, we worked those jobs, and then we went to law school. So I was looking for a job on campus in the law school. And one of the professors had a posting on his door looking for a law clerk apply within. So I went inside and he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm really busy. Can you come back tomorrow and we'll talk about it? And I said, okay. Came back the next day. There was a sign on the door. Women students need not apply. Oh my gosh. And so wow. I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. Anyway, I complained to the to the administration. And so they quickly found me a job because they wanted to shut me up, which was great because then I got a job. And so I, I wound up working at the law library, which has served me very well because I learned all about how libraries work. And now the library at the museum and the understanding of collection sure. management mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff has been an easy thing to go to. Anyway, so then joined the military, was a JAG officer in the military. That's how I got to Germany, lived there for a while. And while I was there, I started to teach at the ad, as an adjunct faculty member in the MBA program, I was teaching business law at the European campus of University of Maryland. So that put me on a graduate faculty. So I come back to the U.S., go to Washington, D.C., live there for a couple of years, and they had a very large requirement for pro bono work for lawyers. And so I decided I would do my pro bono work with arts organizations because that was more interesting than getting people divorces and doing bankruptcy. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, so we went back to New Orleans and the University of New Orleans was looking for a person to teach arts administration law. And they wanted somebody who had graduate teaching experience at a university, plus a lot of experience with the arts organizations. Well, I fit the bill. And so I was able to get that job. And then that turned into running the UNO Foundation. And we opened the Ogden Museum of Southern Art. We opened the D-Day Museum, which all now is the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Wow, that's a great museum. <laughs> yeah, it is a really great place. And so I went to the chancellor and basically said, do you want to have a food museum? And nobody really wanted to do it. Now, by this time, 
I've practiced law, I've done all this stuff. I'm in my 50s, early 50s, but still in my 50s. And I could not let this idea go. You know, it covered everything. I had always explored all the places we went when we were in Europe and other travels, always through food, never gave up my interest in food and culture and all that sort of thing. And um, finally, um, I just said, I've got to quit. I have got to do this. I have got to create this food museum. And um, so I had on the job training and opening a museum. Yeah, yeah. And I had all these other experiences that all kind of coalesced like this is it. Most of the time when you, you have an idea and it doesn't work out, you can usually let it go. This one was just dogging me. It would not <laughs> let me let it go. So I quit and I started the food museum. And that's, that's how I got here. So when you were thinking about this museum, I mean, I've been to, um, I think most of the food museums that exist, you know, sometimes they're very clearly designed to showcase a corporation like the one in VV, you know, the alimentarium. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're, they're, they have a different mission. I guess Copia was a really good one, I think, um, in Napa, that just the whole organization didn't really work. But what were you... What was your your sort of vision of what this would, what function this would serve, and what kind of audience you were trying to reach? And I um I say this because I know the old the, your original space, the right. one that was in the mall. Um, I haven't been to the the newer one, but is it has it also become what you expected it to become? Well, of course, you know I didn't actually know what was going to happen, <clears throat> but in the beginning, I felt like. Okay, let's see what we can do because, you know, to open the, the D-Day Museum, for example, I would go testify before the Louisiana legislature, ask for money, and they just said, okay. But of course, yeah. doing this on your own, nobody is going to just write you a check. Right, right. And so in the beginning, I, I was a, there was a lot of, you know, what are you going to be? And how do you define yourself, especially for fundraising purposes? So we did some pop-ups, even though that term didn't exist at the time. We did some pop-ups to kind of give people an idea about what we wanted to be. And we always said we wanted to be at the intersection of food and drink and culture. So we wanted to talk about food as it related to the geography, to history, to economics, to science, nutrition, the way people eat, the way people interact with each other. I mean, just all of that. We wanted it to be everything about food, not mm. obviously just, you know, a corporate museum kind of place. And uh, we didn't have the resources. So we decided that rather than just be an idea looking for funding for like 30 years until we got the money that we yes. needed, we would start small, even if it wasn't perfect. It was going to be the beginning because then you're a real place. You really exist and you're not just an idea. So we, we opened and then after we opened, this was just like the miracle kind of thing. People started to say, I have this in my garage wow. and I don't wow. really want it, but I know it's too important to get rid of, but can I give it to you so that everybody gets to see it? everybody gets to enjoy it. And so people found out where I lived and they would just put things That's amazing. <laughs> on my front porch. 
So you didn't start by looking for funding first, like like just sort of say, we had a little bit of funding that we did look wow. for, but we couldn't wait until we had like the perfect amount. You know, if I decided, oh, well, we really need $5 million to get started. It takes a long time starting from absolute scratch sure. to raise $5 million. If you're a university that's 30 years old, you have 30 years worth of graduates and other kinds of relationships. Right to come to this is like you're starting from total zero you know so did you make a decision from the start not to seek corporate support well we decided that we would seek corporate support but they would have to understand that it wasn't just about them in other words if you were a hot sauce and you gave us money that didn't mean that no other hot sauce could be involved you know because that's not the story that we were trying to tell. And the same thing was true with coffee and just every kind of product. And then because we decided we would be Southern as opposed to Louisiana or New Orleans, um, that means that we could divide it up by state and then you could, that people were more understanding. Well, of course, this is the, the most important product in Mississippi, or this is the most important product in Kentucky or whatever. And so they could understand that you could say, well, this is in the Kentucky exhibit, you're going to be in this exhibit. So we did get corporate funding of a sort, but we could never ask for that kind of money that would allow people to really demand exclusivity. Right, (laughs) right, right, right. Interesting. So, so the other question, the bigger one is, has it, um, turned out, you know, as your expectations were growing with the museum, has it, um, is it there now? Is it where you wanted it to be by now? Well, of course, the museum itself has kind of taken on its own life, which is, which is really great. Um, But we've, you know, we've expanded beyond it in so many ways. Um, And so, you know, museums, food museums, just have had sort of a struggle in the US, you know, the one in Rhode Island at Johnson and Wales and only the corporate ones like the world of Coca-Cola and all of that kind right, of stuff right, right. Really, really seem to have great funding, but that's just a marketing, uh, a marketing tool. Um, yeah, I was looking at my watch at the same time. We're just talking on and on, so we can just keep going. We need okay, <laughs> good. Um, and we can make it a two-parter if we need to. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, because this is fun. Yes, it has taken on its own life and has gone in many directions that I hadn't anticipated, which is great because I feel like it's turned into its own thing. And so it doesn't need me the way it did before, which is why I retired. And um, I... You know, I'm you know, I'm still involved every day. It's not as though I'm retiring and now knitting every day or something like that. Right, right. But I, I was afraid, you know, I'm in my 70s. So I was afraid that at this age, even though I'm healthy and I'm not expecting to die tomorrow kind of thing, um, you never know what's going to happen. And there needs to be a transition. And the best way to do the transition is when you're still able to be the institutional memory and kind of pass it on. That makes sense. And if something, I've, I've seen too many times where a founder is, 
is incapacitated or dies or whatever happens. And the institution that they created just goes away. It just fizzles and goes away because nobody else is prepared to take it on. And I'm fortunately not so controlling a person that I can't see the benefit of somebody having different ideas and bringing it in different directions. And so what I'm winding up doing is doing sort of institutional building things. Like our library is now turning into a research center. We've partnered with a local community college, which has given us the second floor of their library, Nunez Community College, so we can expand and we have big goals for what that can be. And we are working on other projects that are equally that kind of institution building. Like we have a garden in the back and I'm trying to turn it into something that becomes very informative so that you're getting to see sugarcane and you're getting to see a sassafras tree that you can make filet out of and you're getting to see um, all these different kinds of oaklas and that kind of thing, not just, oh, it's pretty, you know. And so uh, all of those things are things that take a lot of time, but, and you can't do that when you're actually out there fundraising and making the museum work and getting exhibits and putting them together and all of that kind of stuff. That's now what I'm doing. So I feel like it's institution building, but not the day-to-day, you know, the toilet stopped up, who's going to- Right, right, of course, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I always wondered, like if you had infinite amounts of money, you know, what you would put in a museum like that. And I always thought, well, you know, a farm would be great, you know, and a garden and a food processing plant where Uh people could see, you know, everything and not have it, you know, oh, here you're seeing how Hershey's chocolate is made. Isn't it wonderful? And just, just show you, you know, this is where your food comes from. And then, and history, of course, and and mm-hmm. make it into a real research center too, you know, where people yes, can come yes. with a library. That's great. <laughs> and, and we're really looking at our collections as not like the library, the archive, the artifacts. We're integrating all of the collections so that if you want to study beer, let's say, Yes, we have books about beer and we have ephemera and archival material about beer, but we have all these beer bottles. So instead of looking at just this old catalog that has line drawings of beer bottles that somebody in 1910 might buy beer bottles for their brewery, you get to literally see and hold in your hand the changes in beer bottles, how the caps were different, how the glass is different, how it's different colors, how, you know, it's different. And so you get this kind of tactile experience, just like if you, you learn how to do open hearth cooking, you can read about it in somebody's journal. Oh, it was heavy and hot. Right, right. But you don't know unless you've done it. You (laughs) you do it. You have a totally different understanding of it. And so I, I don't, I think that learning and being a research center is so that you are not just learning the abstract of it by reading about it, which of course is important. I don't mean to eliminate that, 
But then these physical activities and physical memories make a, a different, you know, you, you feel it in your own muscles. Right. And, you know, what makes it different also is that a, a library obviously can't take certain types of objects. They don't know how to catalog or store them or use right. them. And, a, you know, in a historical recreation place doesn't usually have a space where you can sit down and do research, you know, right. you know and, and so this, this sounds like a, a good combination. But I'm, I wonder, does, have you ever like had someone want to donate something that you were like, I have no way to use this or, you know, I have no place to put it or this is too big or, you know, what would be the, the limit of what you could, could actually collect? Well, I mean, obviously you can't collect everything and people want to give you, you know, this is my 12 piece set of such and such a China or whatever. And I might just want one place setting. I don't want 12, you know? So I, I often will tell people, give me all the broken sets. Often an auction house or whatever, will get a set of seven that's complete. Well, nobody wants seven because they feel like it's not eight, but right. six, they're happy. Ah, here we have a place, we have place settings for six. So they can give us that one place setting, which actually helps them and it helps us. So I don't want seven. I want the, just the one, you know, and yeah. now you have, you have a number that people feel comfortable with when they buy instead of feeling like they got short change. <laughs> but you it. always have to buy an uneven number of plates just so, because one always breaks. Yeah. So um, let me ask about the, the podcast itself, since this is your hundredth anniversary and the, the process of interviewing. I mean, I'm, I'm a podcast junkie. So, so I listen to, I don't know, a, more than a dozen of these. Do you ever have an experience where everything is going wrong or where it's gone so out of kilter that you just say, I can't use this. I can't, I can't air it because for whatever reason, you know? So it doesn't happen often, but there are occasions where that does happen. Sometimes somebody is one of those people that really can't talk. They don't, you ask an <laughs> right. open-ended question and they say yes. You know, and that's right. like or no, and uh, you feel like, oh my God, nobody wants to listen to this. This is awful. <laughs> and so I've had a few things like that where I've explained to the people that we had a technical snafu during the recording, and then we can't use it, and we'll have to reschedule in the future. But now that you've admitted that, know, <laughs> they're not <I> listening. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, it's kind of like teaching, you know, where sometimes you're really on and sometimes you just go, all right, no one, I'm pulling teeth here, you know, yeah, and uh -huh. sometimes people just don't want to answer. And I imagine interviewing, you know, all the time is probably like that. Um, or you have people who won't shut up, you know, who are just like, you know, don't let you get a word in edgewise, you know. That happens too. That's one of the reasons why I kind of like Zoom, because, especially, you know, during the pandemic, because you can see when someone's trying to talk or say something, right. um, and then you can kind of take advantage of that and not ask your questions or step on them while they're talking. Right. And it's made communication very different also. I think in, in sort of, A, the fact that you can go to a conference or do an interview like this and we don't have to be, you know, be in person, but it has changed the way people meet and talk and communicate. And it just, just becomes so much easier now that yes. you wonder, 
where sort of just in, in terms of communications, how, how they will be, how much they've changed in the past decade, you know, yes. alone. The fact that I'm doing this on my phone now, it's kind yes. of unbelievable. Yes. But just, you know, think of the educational opportunities for an institution or a museum or anything to do with food where you want people to become educated and learn a topic. The media has made that so much easier now. Yes, it, it really definitely is. I mean, there's even YouTube. I mean, I learned how right. to change the battery in my car fob by looking at a YouTube video. <laughs> I need to do that. Mine is broken. <laughs> I need a new battery. You'll have to send me the link, please. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really great. And I've seen some really wonderful food demonstrations, cooking demonstrations. Sure. That has been really great. I really liked yours that you did for a museum. I'm forgetting which museum it was now. But it was a museum you did some food demonstrations for. And um, the Getty, maybe? The Getty. I think it at was the probably Getty. the Getty, yeah. Yes, it was yeah. the Getty. And that I enjoyed that. I thought that was really, really interesting. That was fun. And it and of course means that the physical walls of a museum really are not that important anymore. You know, That's if right. you can take a virtual tour of the museum, if you have educational programs and things that last forever, yes. it just means. Museum is changing, I think, because yes, of it. Yes, all of it, all of it really is. And I think it probably would have gradually changed, but the pandemic really yes. accelerated it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's been it's been interesting. And you know, I've learned to edit my podcast and do things <laughs> like that, you know. So <laughs> there's uh, always some new skill to learn. <laughs> Okay, so tell me, I mean, apart from the podcast, now that you're officially retired in quotes, you know, what else do you have on the back burner, so to speak? Well, I have a book that's coming out in May, in March. It's coming out in time for St. Joseph's Day, which is a big Italian celebration in yeah. New Orleans. It's my first cookbook. And it's about growing up in this Sicilian community in New Orleans, and the kinds of foods that are partly fusion, partly true Sicilian, but maybe made with different ingredients because of what's available. So that's something that's happening, which is fun. That's fantastic. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that at all. And well, you know, you don't really talk about a book that's that far out. It's coming out in March, but I mean, we're working on the index now. So you yeah. know, it's pretty much done and laid out so that you can get the right page numbers. Right, yeah. And uh, so that's been a really kind of big thing. And then I'm obviously I'm working on this research center, trying to make that work and the garden that I told you about. So I'm working on that. I just have a lot of uh, what I just consider outreach. We've been consulting with other museums. Well, you've heard the podcast about yeah. the foodzium that, that dropped this week. And so we're working with the Foodzium, which is really exciting. And I am trying to put some kind of a network together of food museums in the U.S. Um, so How interesting. Do you know, I think Sandy Oliver did try to do that maybe a decade ago. And I think she called it Nacho or something like that. But, <laughs> but, they've, but they've changed now, you know, and some that were purely virtual have become brick and mortar. Right. Um, I don't know if the one in Brooklyn existed then yet, but um, but that one, I'm, I'm just trying to like sort of mentally think of how many food museums there are in the U.S., but there probably are a lot that are devoted to, you know, 
cheese or you know whatever right. you know right. individual items right right and some of them are stores that have a section sure. that is really about whatever the store sells you know and and all counts you know and um all of it have different degrees of sophistication in terms of what they show and what their mission is and also different degrees of of salesmanship and marketing versus trying to be a a more general kind of museum you know right i mean the the one i saw i guess the last time i saw you i went to the tabasco museum with um ashley which was very very i mean it was a great trip we had a fantastic time and you lent me your car so thank you Uh but it was it was i thought like really well done but very obviously they're trying to sell a product Mm -hmm. and a museum that is trying to just give you a general history lesson or tell you about something has just got a very different, you know, uh, mission than, right. than a, a corporate one. Right. Um, but you're going to include all of them just, just across the board. Right. Right. And uh, that way people can make their own decisions as to whether this is something that they want to see. The other thing that I think is really changing in the museum world is that already established museums are suddenly seeing food as something (laughs) that is worthy of an exhibit or some aspect of it fits into something that is already there. And that's very exciting. So you can go to the Smithsonian and, you know, not only do you see Julia Child's kitchen, but you get to see other information about food. Right. And museums routinely now have restaurants that serve the food that's about the culture, you know, which yes. is which is a great thing, I think. Yes. Um, too. And, you know, so do you see something sort of a, an evolution of what a food museum will look like down the road? Like where, where would you picture it ending up now that we're in this period of transition? So uh, I, I think that food museums are going to expand themselves into what they see so that there's going to be more about, for example, food waste and hunger and some of those issues that most of the time museums don't really look into. Food, you know, people talk, talk about the eating and the production right. and right. the cooking and serving and whatever. But I think that... Um, the, the other side of it is really worth um, exploring. And, um, and I don't think that that has been done as much. No, it hasn't. And you, you don't see any danger in that sort of the way, you know, I'm, I'm always reminded of Gourmet Magazine, which was totally culinary. And when Ruth Reichel took over and wanted to do issues, I thought it was a much, much better magazine. Of but course, obviously I didn't, Nass say, yeah. didn't think so, you know, in the long run. But does a museum... I don't mean to say that it would alienate visitors, but do you think visitors would say, I don't want to be told a lesson not to eat French fries, you know, when I go to a museum and that that somehow the, the politicizing of the space, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. But does does the museum stand to. To hurt you know, itself. Big, in some right. Way? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think that it just depends on how you present it. You know, if you if you talk about food waste, then there's the whole issue of what do you do with this food? How can you maybe change the way people think about 
wasted food or food that's no longer saleable. I mean, I think that there's a way to do it where people become engaged in it as in right. as something to do. And so that's really the, the museum's um, mission is to make it engaging. And right. But, you, but you still stand to, you know, I mean, there's certain topics that people are going to get upset about if you talk about obesity, if you talk about corporate control of the food supply, you know, let alone that people work and, you know, or you talk about the, the things that really matter, you know, uh, fair wages for, for restaurant workers, you know, all these things we really, well, obviously they're the stuff of podcasts, but like a physical space, when you walk into it, does someone get really alienated when you tell them that they're, they're part of the problem, you know, ultimately? Well, I mean, I guess they can. Um, there was a time when if you said you were a vegan, people were up in arms and they didn't want to talk to you anymore. You know, you're bad. Don't tell me. And, and, that, and by implication, if you're a vegan, you're saying I'm bad because I eat meat or uh, I exactly eat. right. Yeah. And, and so you just have to be careful how you present it, because I think that 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 is the issue that that we have to deal with as people it's not a, a, a world in which everything is dichotomous it's multichotomous or whatever it's sure, um, sure. it's and and we tend to simplify 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 so that we want it to be this or that if you say this you must believe all this huge number of things that they've associated with that sure. thing and, <laughs> And so you just have to be aware of that when you're putting together the exhibit so that you can show that there are multiples. There are multiple reasons why this is the way it is. It's not, it's not a single thing. It's not a single politicized position. It's like, look at all of this that we have to explore. Right, right. But you still have certain things that you believe <laughs> and that yes, you want to yes. change. I mean, you know, and if I were to ask you, okay, uh, so Liz Williams is now the queen, a mm -hmm. benevolent dictator, we hope, but like what? Like, I want to be an empress, you, not the queen. Empress would be fine. That's yes. <laughs> okay. I, I, I anoint you now. Um, but like, but like, what are the issues that you think maybe should be tackled and maybe, maybe a museum or, you know, or it's online presence or who knows, you know, how this would pan out into a, into an exhibit. But what are those things that you think really should well, be the I, job of a museum to tell people? I think it would be really interesting to do an exhibit about glass recycling and um, talking about how you can crush glass to turn it into basically sand and then use the sand instead of dredging sand, sure. using the sand to do things that then put sand back in places where we're threatening environments or whatever by dredging for sand. So that would be something. I think hunger is another, another really important issue um, that is totally related to food and talk about how changing how our own sense in a, a sort of colonialism of, of, our, of our ways, not necessarily because we've gone and, and taken over a country politically, but by, you know, every place we go now, everybody drinks Coca-Cola, sure. you course, know, yes. that kind of stuff. Um, 
and so now they're drinking sugar drinks instead of water. And, you know, um, I think that we, we should know that that happens and it may not always be for the good. And, um, right. and so, so that's sort of preserving food cultures around yeah. the world. Yes. yes, of course. Yes. And so maybe that's the way you say it, just the way you did right. about preserving food cultures instead of saying, look at our Western colonialism. And so, right. you know, right. we, you just have to find the way to say it so that it's not in somebody's face and it's not offensive so that they will be open to at least learning about it. That makes perfect sense. All right, I have one final question. <laughs> gonna, otherwise, this is going to become a Wagnerian opera. Right, I think you're right. We're going to go on for three hours. So I, I always ask at the beginning of a class, everyone has heard the Briat Savarin quip about, you know, tell me what you are and tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. So tell me what you eat and what it reveals about you and how is your personality reflected in your favorite foods and your character, since we want to, I don't know, I guess know more about you from, from this interview, because I don't know, I have no idea what your favorite food is. So my very favorite things to eat are really all of the bitter vegetables. So I have read that, because you know, in Sicily, a lot of the bitter foods and things that are bitter are very prevalent. And they say that because it was an island, people began to have fewer bitter receptors on their tongues. So that instead of tasting it and going, oh my God, that's so bitter, we just find it a pleasant bitterness. You know, it's a pleasant degree of bitterness. Yeah. And uh, uh, maybe it lends a complexity to something rather than just stopping you from wanting to eat it. Anyway, so I'm a Brussels sprouts, artichoke, cardoon, uh, turnip greens, uh, mustard greens. Bitter um, greens are like broccoli rabe is the best thing on earth. <laughs> you know, oh, absolutely. Nothing tastes better. Yeah. Yes. And with lemon juice, maybe some lemon rind, olive oil and garlic, you just make yeah, me happy. Yeah. And it's not sweets. It's not potato chips or whatever. It's that vegetal thing that has that bitterness. I really, really like it. I'm not sure what that reveals about you. I don't you. know You're not a person. <laughs> no. It's your intensity. It's your conviction. It's, right? um, Maybe it just means that I'm stubborn. You know, I don't know. No, you're serious. You're, you're not kidding serious. around. Yeah. You're not sweet and fluffy. Right? <laughs> That's great. Well, this was so much fun. Thank it you really for was. asking me to do this. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll see each other in person and again soon. I, I definitely hope so. And you did a very good job with your first interview. I hope you feel that way. <laughs> Thank you. It was well worked for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams. <laughs>